People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. Fine Music Radio and Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. Now, I wonder if you know about an exciting and thought-provoking permanent exhibition entitled Truth to Power, Desmond Tutu and the Churches in the Struggle Against Apartheid. This is curated in partnership with the Apartheid Museum, and it's a state-of-the-art exhibition celebrating the life and legacy of Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Despite the Nobel Peace Laureate's profound impact on South Africa and the world, there has been no single permanent exhibit solely dedicated to Archbishop Tutu. So this exhibition begins to acknowledge his massive contribution and serves as a basis for addressing the distinct deficit in school and university curricula of material about the multifaceted life and legacy of this global icon. And I thought, who better to talk about this and take us through it all than John Allen, who became press secretary to Desmond Tutu after Tutu was elected Anglican Archbishop of Cape Town in 1986. John became involved with Desmond Tutu in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, as well as at the Atlanta University in the United States. John was a South African journalist with experience in newspapers, news agencies, a journalist union, churches, and South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. John, welcome to People of Note. Thank you, Rodney. It's a privilege to be here. It's good to be here. And I remember reading your book, in fact, your autobiography of Tutu, or your biography, called Rabble Rouser for Peace. Yeah. That was the first, <laughs> and it was a cheeky title, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was actually based on something that I heard Albertina Sisulu say to him once. Uh, Madiba was not out of prison yet, but her husband and other Rabonia trialists were out, and there was a big celebration at Jabalani Stadium in Soweto. And the end of it, Albertina came up to him and said, you're just a rebel rouser. <laughs> and of course he was, much more exciting <laughs> rhetorically than the Rivonia trialists were. Well, exactly, he was, wasn't he? And the most infectious laugh, I think, of anybody. Well, absolutely. But tell me, let's just concentrate on this exhibition, first of all, Truth mm. to Power, Desmond Tutu and the Churches in the Struggle Against Apartheid. What is it actually? Give us a little bit of a background and what the exhibition is all about. Well, the Apartheid Museum, uh, in fact, came to the office of the current Anglican Archbishop, Taba Mokhoba, uh, about four years ago, saying they were wanting to do something on the role of the churches in the struggle and seen through the eyes of Desmond Tutu because to focus it on one individual makes it a little bit easier. Um, Especially on that individual. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I happened to be helping, as I continue to do so, Archbishop Mokhoba with his communications and so I began to liaise with the Apartheid Museum, and Emilia Potenza, the enormously talented uh, curator of the exhibition and leading figure at the museum, then began to work on it a year or a little later. Where it was a struggle at first to decide what the focus should be. I mean, firstly, there was the question that it was not only Christians who opposed apartheid, there were people of other faiths. Um, and then how do you recognize the role of other significant figures? 
um, uh, Christian figures, Archbishop Dennis Hurley of Durban, Bayes Nordia, the Christian Institute, and many others. So we have this enormous amount of material. With the help of a reference group, including people who worked closely with the Archbishop, Brigalia Bum, who later became uh, in chair of the Independent Electoral Commission, That's right. Peter Storey, former president of the Council of Churches when uh, Desmond Tutu was the general and secretary. And a bishop in there. the Methodist Church. And a, yes, a presiding bishop in the Methodist yeah. Church. With their assistance, we gradually narrowed it down. And the way in which we narrowed it down was to focus on six themes. The one was uh, focused on Tutu's early life. And the link we drew between that and developments later was that when he came back to South Africa, the Soweto uprising, well, let's start from the beginning, um, he was educated by the churches, as were most black South Africans in the in those days. days. Absolutely, yeah. And he then became a teacher because he couldn't become a doctor because he didn't have the money. He was admitted to medical school, but his parents didn't have the money for him to study. He became a teacher, but he and Leia, his wife, left teaching because of the introduction of Bantu education. Years later, 20 years later, when they come back to South Africa from doing a job in which he was based in London, it's Bantu education which sparks the Soweto uprising, which sees his rise to prominence. Right. So absolutely. that's the first theme, mm-hmm. is, is, is links those two. Yes, because it says on the press release here, uh, apartheid education, the most evil act of all, how the apartheid-era policy of Bantu education changed Tutu's life and South Africa's history because it thrust him into the... He was already an ordained priest then, wasn't he? Yes, yes. Before the Soweto uprising, yeah. Yes, yes. the phrase, the most evil act of all, is actually a phrase used by Oliver Tambo uh, about Bantu education. When Archbishop Tutu came back, he became best known in his early time in 76, about six weeks before the outbreak of the Soweto uprising, uh, for a letter he wrote to the Prime Minister John Forster, warning him, saying, I, I, "If we don't, if you don't act fast, I have this nightmarish fear that we're going to be plunged into conflict." Good just grief. to paraphrase Good him, gosh. and of course the Suwida uprising broke out mm-hmm. uh, 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 five weeks later. Where was he at that stage? Was he at in that, a parish, or had he become a bishop? Yes, he'd become he'd become the dean of Johannesburg. Oh, the actually. dean, right? Yeah, the yeah. bishop at the time was Timothy Baben born in England, and he invited uh, uh, Desmond Tutu to return from London, where he was doing a church job involving traveling around Africa, the base was London, because Tutu became very close in a surprise, uh, somewhat of a surprise, he came quite close to being elected as Bishop of Johannesburg in 1974. And so uh, Timothy Baven told me, well, you know, I thought he ought to come back to South Africa and become the first black dean of the St. Mary's Cathedral in Johannesburg. Which, as we know, caused quite an outrage. <laughs> yes, it did. I mean, we laugh, but yeah. a number of people fled the church, didn't they? Yes, yes. Uh, and then when he became bishop, that was almost the last straw. I mean, in Johannesburg, I remember so clearly. Um, John, I want to go through some of these uh, legacies through six different themes. We've spoken right. about a party education, one of the other, a few of the others as well. But let's have a music break at this stage. And I'm pleased to see you've chosen our own pretty yende. Yes, not for any particular reason because of the music, mm-hmm. although I think 
this piece of music to my untutored ear. <laughs> sounds on. as though it stretches. Uh, you know, it, it, it displays her wonderful qualities as a soprano. But it's just so exciting for me that we live in an era in which a pretty yende, who in a previous era might never have, wouldn't have aspired, mm. been able to aspire. Mm. And of course she was trained here in Cape Town, I think that's right. She was. And is doing marvelously in Europe. And you know, one of the things that I feel quite strongly is that our constitution guarantees us a society in which everybody has a contribution to make. So while I have enormous sympathy with the focus on indigenization in the arts, and it's very important for people to recover their cultures, I also hope that there's that we won't be so chauvinistic as to say that a pretty yende should be confined to her traditional genre, as it were, that she can go and glitter Yes, on the absolutely. opera, pla- on the opera which stages is what of Europe, doing. which is what she's doing. She's going to sing Mozart's Exultate Jubilate.
really is a showpiece for the soprano Mozart's Exultate Jubilate sung by our own Pretty Enda and we love saying that don't we it was the first choice of my guest on People of Note this week John Allen and we're talking at the moment about an exhibition entitled Truth to Power Desmond Tutu and the Churches in the Struggle Against Apartheid and we mentioned education there John but also the church itself is another important line in the struggle, uh, which is part of the same exhibition, isn't it? The struggle in the church, fighting a false gospel, as it says here. The intent there uh, in the exhibition was to look at the roots of the Christian faith in South Africa and to trace how the churches, from being quite quiescent in the early years of apartheid, uh, with the exception of people such as Archbishop Dennis Hurley of the Catholic Church in the 50s and the Catholic Bishops' Conference and other churches, the Methodists, Peter Story's father, Clifford Story. Um, with, with their exception, the churches were were, were, were quiescent. They did the, the criticism of the Anglican Archbishop at the time was that he spoke out only when apartheid actually intruded on the church itself through an, a law in the late 50s which attempted to regulate whether black people could attend services in white areas. Um, And so this section of the exhibit traces from there through the growing opposition in the churches uh, to apartheid through something in 1968 called the Message to the People of South Africa, which declared apartheid a false doctrine, a heresy. Who who wrote that or where did that come from? That was done by a group of theologians acting within the South African Council of Churches or what what was the body that became the Sovereign Council of Churches. Um, and then it goes on in Desmond Tutu's education to his time when he worked with uh, theologians, uh, black theology, liberation theology, African theology, Professor Mbiti of Kenya, um, and formed and absorbed those theologies to become a strong advocate of theology which they used to call contextual theology in other words a theology which was different from that which he learned in England he did his uh, uh, honours and master's degree in theology at King's College London Um, but there had teachers who said to him when he wanted to write about black theology said what's that (laughs) and he he was saying well and he, he said to me when I was writing the biography that um, actually I came back from London, a fairly conventional Western theologian, but absorbed black theology. So very much paired with the black con- growth of the black consciousness movement. Steve Biko, Barney Pachana, Malusi Mpulwana, the current General Secretary of the Council of Churches, Mampela Rampele, um, and, and, and developed a strong assertive theology which made no apologies for saying we're Africans 
and our faith ought to reflect our African culture. And, well, I mean, having said all that, he then, it's all very well saying that if you just moving in black circles, but he was now bringing this out very much into the open and challenging white Christians to think about black theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he was appointed dean and then bishop, that really came to the the, the top, didn't it? That, that was his mission almost. Yes. The thing that attracted me, I, I was appointed the religion correspondent of the Star in Johannesburg in 1976, just about the time of the Soweto uprising. Oh, really? oh, mm. right, right. And what attracted me to him was that, I mean, the black theology and the stance against apartheid and for democracy was not substantially different to that of a growing generation of black church leaders, many of whom had been educated abroad and develop you know, their knowledge that they were as good as anybody else from anywhere else in the world. His, his position was not a lot different, but he had this fierce determination to tell the truth as he saw it, no matter what the consequences. And uh, he quotes from the book of Jeremiah, and uh, 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 it's a quote which roughly says, the word of God burns in my heart and it has to get out. And he, he, he relates Jeremiah arguing with God in that book in the Old Testament, saying, oh, but I, I don't want to be a prophet, Lord, you, but you give me this burning, burning fire in my breast which must speak out. And it was just extraordinary at the time because, of course, the uh, liberation movements were banned. People were in prison and in exile. Um, uh, the Perhaps the most prominent black leaders were the uh, homeland leaders with their varying degrees of willingness to cooperate with the system. You had Butler's right. against cooperating, yes. uh, uh, taking independence. And here was this kind of fresh figure, you know, who would... Mm-hmm. I, I remember once the extraordinary sort of contrast between being in a white Anglican parish on a, on, on a weekday evening with a visiting cleric from Liverpool uh, and Desmond Tutu in Regina Mundi Church saying, you have your boys on the border, but we've got our boys on the border as well. And of course, they were the people you call terrorists, and we oh call my freedom my fighters. My so yeah, it was, uh, he, 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 he said powerful he was, things, didn't he? He, he had an yeah. incredible gift of the gab. Absolutely. I mean, his communicative skills were just extraordinary um, to the degree that many years later, when he became an established person on the speaker circuit in the United States, uh, a speaker's agency was handling the bookings, told me he was, you know, one of the people whose rhetoric the speaker's programs loved the most because mm-hmm. it was so clear and he had such an ability to read his audiences. I remember as a young broadcaster at the SABC how the SABC used to vilify him. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember, there was a, um, a little feature in the mornings on the English service called Comment, yes. <laughs> which was written by the most nationalist thinkers in the SBC, <laughs> and they often used to absolutely vilify him, mm-hmm. uh, too, too. But he somehow survived, and I just am amazed that he survived. I'm just amazed he wasn't one of those people that was thrown off the window in John Foster Square. He survived spectacularly. Well, he was his presence in the church. I think protected him mm. um, to a degree. Um, I mean, he from the time in which he walked into the Council of Churches, he reached out to the White Dutch Reformed Church. He would have meetings with some of their people, their ecumenical people, and 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 he 
so he reached out, and so there may have been an influence from the churches on people. I mean, the, you know, Smangalizam Kacha, who is Secretary General of the Bishops' Conference, uh, uh, the people in one of the death squads had literally him in their sights at Durban Airport once, but there were too many people to shoot Smangaliso. him. Smangaliso. Yeah. yeah. And, um, uh, and Frank Ciccani, of course, yes. famously was poisoned. That's right. So I, I think that th- they were willing to take on church people, but one, I think, uh, Desmond Tutu reached out to the Afrikaner community, even in those days, it may not have been known. He would speak on Afrikaans campuses. Another element was, of course, he had a close relationship with Robert Runcie, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time. And although he had somewhat of a stormy relationship with Margaret Thatcher, he nevertheless had access to her. Um, Runcie. Runcie did. Yeah, Robert Runcie yeah. did. So that provided, um, uh, I, I think, probably, uh, and of course, Thatcher, together with Reagan and Helmut Kohl in Germany, uh, were the Western leaders who were standing up against sanctions, and therefore P.W. Wurta had to listen to them. Mm. Then, of course, the third factor was the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. Once he was given the Nobel Prize, uh, well, the way that, I think it was Craig Williamson, uh, the, the spy, infamous right. spy, yeah. who went to St. John's, Anglican, St. John's College right. and Anglican School in Johannesburg, yes. the way that Craig Williamson, I think it was Craig Williamson, put it to me was, well, if the state had assassinated Tutu, it would have brought up down upon the government the very sanctions they were trying to avoid, which Tutu was advocating. Mm-hmm. So I think Gosh. that protected the Nobel Peace Prize. Perhaps it was the primary in the late 80s, probably was the primary factor. Protecting Is that when him. he got it, the late 80s? Uh, he got it in 84. Oh, 84. Okay. And, right. yeah. John, I see we have a traditional African chorus coming up as your next choice of music. Yes, um, I, I love this because I remember it most clearly, actually, at Archbishop Desmond and Leia's 50th wedding anniversary in a church in Orlando West in Soweto. And the, as I recall it, it was the opening chorus. Now, Tutu had been the rector of a nearby Anglican uh, church in, in, in Orlando West, and he used to berate the congregation on their adherence to hymns ancient and modern. You know, they were proud Anglicans and hymns yeah. ancient and modern, the classic English hymnal was what they stuck to. And he would urge the congregations, let's rely on our traditional choruses. And Insikana's great hymn is, of course, the best known. I think, you know, people describe it as a thoroughly African, uh, based on, of course, a wedding song mm-hmm. uh, initially. Mm-hmm. And it's been described as the pinnacle of traditional Kosa songwriting and the preeminent symbol of indigenous South African Christianity. And that initial call and response uh, at the beginning of the of the chorus uh, at the time of the of their fiftieth wedding anniversary just had me in goose flesh.
I think I hear what you mean, John, with that chorus in Sikana's great hymn. Um, and it was a, the second choice, actually, of my guest on People of Note this week here on Fine Music Radio, John Allen, who's here. I'm interviewing you, John, as your lifelong, well, for a very long time, associated with Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Tutu. You began as you, well, you worked as a religious correspondent for the star, but how did you get involved with Desmond Tutu and became such an integral part of his life in his communicative um, world? Well, he, from the beginning, he had a really good relationship with journalists. I say that it's one of the reasons he became internationally so well-known, was his openness to journalists, his enjoyment of critical journalists cross-examining him in the way that people in the church would never do <laughs> from his heights as an archbishop or yes. in his heights as an archbishop. And, but, uh, so what attracted me to him, as I've said, is his outspokenness. And then the, and I've reported on him, I guess, for about six years as the religion correspondent. I then went to, off to work. I pretty much burnt my bridges in the white press at the time because I was involved in a journalist union. And oh, we began yeah. to <laughs> sort of agitate for better pay for yeah. journalists yeah. and for on press freedom issues. And so I became a full-time official of the journalist union, the old South African Union of Journalists, uh, for about five years. Got to know a lot of journalists around the country traveling around in the English press, of course, because others weren't allowed to join at the time in the pro-apartheid media, and saw how in the 80s the portrait of Desmond Tutu that was being portrayed in the largely white media and who he really was were just like chalk and cheese. That wasn't who he was. Yeah, and they used to put very strange pictures. I mean, there was a famous picture of him with the uh, uh, hammer and sickle above him, I think, um, with him waving his arms about. And it was, as told, carefully sort of manipulated so that it would look as though he was a communist supporter. Yeah, uh, it, 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 it must have been because the church leaders, if they saw that happen, and that mm. happened particularly in the late 80s, would actually say, hey, no, sorry, you're going to create the wrong impression with our yeah, congregants. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah it, was a, it was a huge difference. And one of the glorious things about it I mean, I, for me, there's nothing that I would ever want to be more than a reporter. It's an enormous privilege in, in, in life to be a reporter, to be meeting with and being able to report independently on, not being caught up in the machinery, as it were, on you know, public figures of the stature of Desmond Tutu, all sorts of others as well. And with him, you never felt you were being asked to be a spin doctor. In other words, I went in there as his uh, media secretary, we called it, determined that to the disappointment of some white Anglicans, I was not going to tone him down and in fact didn't speak for him. I wasn't his spokesperson. I used my contacts in the media, uh, developed in my time as, uh, as, a, as an organizer for the journalist union in different newspapers around the country to know how to connect him with the right people. He said what he wanted to say. He didn't moderate his tone, but you were able, for example, to be sitting in Kinshasa, as he once was, and preaching in the grounds of the Palais de Pulpil, the, the National Assembly, because the uh, Zaire government at the time, Mobutu's government, had said, no, we don't want you to preach at a stadium, we want to preach in the grounds of the National Assembly because that's where the Pope preached. Whereas actually the people in the churches were saying they were too scared of student protests in the stadium and they wanted to keep <laughs> control and they surrounded the parliament with troops. Yeah. 
And there, he said, for example, the only thing that has changed from the colonial era in some African countries is the color of the skin of the oppressor. So ah, you were able to send yeah. that. There, were, there weren't people who were reporting on that from there, so I was able to just use a verbatim quote, send it home, and lo and behold, it's a front-page lead in the Argus at the time, which just said that he, he wasn't sort of unidimensional. His mm -hmm. condemnation of human rights abuses would happen in Kinshasa, in Addis Ababa, in Cairo, in as much as it would happen in South Africa. Yeah. And there was that incredible genuineness about him, both his, his faith preaching and his commitment to human rights, as you say. Um, because then, oh, is that how you got involved? Then you got involved with him? Yes, when he became archbishop. That's right. In I, Cape I, I heard that he needed a press secretary. 1986. 1986, yeah. And uh, I heard that he needed a press secretary. I'm not quite sure where the story eventually came from. So I wrote to him, and of course he'd, he'd dealt with me for six years in an yeah, earlier period. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and for the first three years of my employment, he was helped by uh, a church in New York. I gave him sponsorship until I proved myself that I was able to, to be put in the local church uh, budget. And, uh, and, and I was hired as his full-time press secretary. Okay, and you did that for a long time, didn't you? Yes, well, I was with him in the church for nine years and then in the uh, Truth Commission for three years and then the final two years of my time with him until the year 2000 was at a university in Atlanta. In Atlanta. Oh, yes, I mentioned that. Another music choice now, I think, John, and you've chosen some interesting things. We've just had a traditional African chorus. Now we have another one. Hakeleche. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. Hakeleche. <laughs> it's a beautiful chorus. You know, one of the things working for Archbishop Desmond was traveling with him all over southern Africa. Rural was he fun to parishes. travel with? Oh, yeah. Yeah, look, he was a demanding boss, mm -hmm. but he never demanded more out of you than he was demanding of himself. And you just had to be able to keep up with him. You needed stamina. He had extraordinary stamina. But it was fun traveling with him. You know, if you're in a mistake, you must tell him about the mistake before he finds out about it through another means, you know, and then you're fine. <laughs> okay. And um, what was marvelous about that was that you're in township parishes, you're in township parishes, Sebe King after a massacre, or you're in mm -hmm. a rural KwaZulu-Natal after IFP supporters have been massacred, or you're in a remote uh, parish in Mozambique during the era where churches were still, had still been closed by the Frelimo government. You know. Weren't you nervous? Weren't you scared? No, because, because what I found was that it's where I feel most truly South African. It's where my comfort zone is. It's just to be in a congregation. And I, I look, I love the Western traditional music as well, hymns ancient and modern. But I mean, those choruses, whether you're in Mozambique or northern Namibia on the Angolan border or a rural parish in Zululand or the Eastern Cape, wherever yeah, you are, yeah. I mean, you know, there are common choruses in many places. Um, and what I love about this one is the way in which, I mean, I, you know, Whenever, whenever I hear it, when my wife and I hear it, we want to get up and dance to it and 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 grab our our kneelers, our leathern prayer kneelers, and bang out the rhythm. Because of course, a lot of it's a cappella. It's not. Is that what they did? Music. Pick up the kneeler and bang. yeah, pick up a kneeler or your prayer book oh, and, and bang, bang out oh, the rhythm see, to okay. it. 
And, um, or your hymns ancient and modern. I'm not sure whether I could do that. But anyway, uh, and this one actually was, I think I'm right in saying, it was Archbishop Desmond's mother's favorite chorus, and I think also Archbishop Taba Mohoba's mother's uh, favorite chorus. They both come from the Sudu, the Sudu group of languages, and uh, that's why that's why I love this. It's 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 part of what in the church, as I say, in those kind of contexts, hearing those at a big celebration or in a local parish is where I feel most South African and most comfortable.
there you are. That piece, another traditional African chorus, Hakele Che. How am I doing, John? Yeah, pretty well. I'm <laughs> not much better myself, I must tell you. Okay. John Allen is my guest, who for many years was press secretary to Desmond Tutu. And one of the things I invited John in to talk to us about was this exhibition, a permanent exhibition here in Cape Town, called Truth to Power, Desmond Tutu and the Churches in the Struggle Against Apartheid. And it maps his legacy through six different themes, this particular exhibition, one of which is protest and peacemaking. In the streets and stadiums, how Tutu took every opportunity to preach defiance of apartheid in all its manifestations to advocate for justice and to plead for peace. It was always good, wasn't it? He never, ever tried to create people to be violent, is what I'm trying to say. Yes. Um the reason for entitling the biography Rabble Rouser for Peace is that he had an extraordinary capacity, and I never remember it more clearly than at Bloberg Strunt once. There'd been protests, beach protests of 1989 in the beaches outside Cape Town, not in Cape Town at that stage, but outside Cape Town, which was still segregated. They'd been blocked from protesting at the Strand, and so a whole bunch of people just flocked onto Bloberg where there'd be no preparation, and we got called there. And he arrived to find a group of young black South Africans who had been uh, on buses and had been beaten off the beach by the police, but a small contingent of police who were in danger of being overwhelmed. White holidaymakers, probably farmers with pistols strapped to their belts, I'm not sure, and this confrontation. Yeah. And uh, and Tutu said to the police captain, I think it was a captain who was, who was there, give me your megaphone. <laughs> And the policeman was very, but he was very worried clearly <laughs> about sure. what happened, what would happen. And uh, and so he reluctantly go over his megaphone, and the arch climbed up on the back of somebody's bucky, and engaged in the kind of rabble rousing rhetoric that used to scare the bejesus out of his white bishops when we were visiting Seba King or Sharpville or somewhere like that where there was trouble. Um, but then at the end of it. He would taunt young people. He would catch them by surprise and say, do you believe you're going to be free? And there'd be a lack of a proper response. And he'd eventually be, he'd be sort of provoking them. Do you believe you're going to be free? No, you don't believe you're going to be free. Come on, tell. And he'd, you know, the rhetoric would go up and up. Yes, we believe we're going to be free. All of us together. All of us together. Black and white together. And he'd have them chanting. And then he'd say, well, people who believe they're going to be free are people who are disciplined and dignified. Now we've made our point. We're going to get back on the buses. And as he handed the megaphone back to the police captain, he said, look, I told you we could sort this out. And the police captain said somewhat grumpily, well, we won't say how. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good story, John. What was, and just uh, um, a a short uh, thing, um, Mm -hmm. he was a very deeply contemplative uh, Mm -hmm. Christian. I know he used to go to St. Benedict's Convent Mm -hmm. in Johannesburg and Rosettenville for retreats. As a private man, you must have seen that side of him as well, his private spiritual side. Mm. Hours a day in silence. He didn't talk about it a lot, but from what Leah, his wife, has told, and from what we saw when he was the Archbishop, for example, up at four in the morning, kneeling on the side of his bed, 
in silence, whether it was the morning jog, all the way through till eight o'clock, the um, uh, morning jog, being quiet, devotional reading, daily uh, mass, Eucharist, communion, um, morning prayer every day, private prayers at lunchtime, followed by arrest, evening prayer, formal evening prayer, his own private prayers, and Compline at night. And totaled up, it was about six hours of the day spent in silence. Mm. And what we used to say when we were traveling and people wanted to grab every minute of his time, we'd say, if you want the ebullient, the vital, outward-going, extrovert tutu, you need to recognize that that is the other side of a coin. It's the other side of these hours spent in silence. We're nearing the end of our chat, uh, John, but just to recap on this particular exhibition, when you go there, do you, is it a case of wandering around, um, or how does it work when you want to go and look at this exhibition? Yes. In Cape Town, where it's a permanent exhibit, there's a particular order in mm-hmm. which you go through it. Right. Um, okay. It's been expanded for Cape Town by the CEO of the Desmond and Leia Tutu Legacy Foundation. So there there are additional elements, wonderful elements, something on the Archbishop and Leia and their relationship, something on the Archbishop's relationship with Madiba, and also this extraordinary wall of 19,000 names of people declared victims of the apartheid struggle. Victims of all walks of life. In other words, it would include landmine people victims of landmines on the border when the ANC for a brief period was using landmines on the border Um, so I don't think there's anything like it in the country so that's what you'll see in Cape Town at the apartheid museum in Johannesburg the design is a little different but it also has those six themes oh so it's there are two exhibitions there's one in Johannesburg and Cape Town yeah the exhibition as designed for the apartheid museum uh, has just opened with the reopening of the Apartheid Museum. And I saw in some pictures when it was being launched, lots of artifacts as well. Yes. Concerning the arch. Concerning the arch, yeah. Whatever happened to the flying arch? That is actually in the foyer of the Desmond and Leo Tutu Legacy Foundation. (laughs) (laughs) It's a frivolous question to end. But we're going to end, John, after this fascinating conversation with Bruce Springsteen, whom we Mm. don't hear every day on (laughs) Fine Music Radio. But there is a very good reason you're playing this from his album, The Rising, reflecting the 9-11 experience in New York, uh, Into the Fire, because you were there, and that's a fascinating to be that close. Mm. Just just tell us what happened, how you, uh, what you were doing there. Right. When I, uh, my time with The Arch finished in 2000, I stayed in the States for a couple of years because both my sons were at American universities and I had to pay their fees. And I got a job with the church, Trinity Wall Street, which was the church, uh, it's the original Anglican church in Manhattan, and it's the church which actually sponsored the first three years of my employment with the church in South Africa. Oh, yes, you mentioned that. Because they have a lot of resources. Mm. And uh, we lived across the river in New Jersey, in Jersey City, and on the morning of September the 11th, I just emerged from the World Trade Center, from the PATH train station, from under the Hudson River, and the World Trade Center, when the first plane came in and hit the North Tower. So you were heading to the World Trade Center? I, I was, I'd come out of the World Trade oh, Center. Oh, you were in basement. the World Trade Center? Yeah, oh, I'd come right. out of the basement, out of the, the, uh, the subway station mm. in the basement of the World Trade Center and had just turned the corner on my way to the church offices, which were two blocks away, when the first p- 
plane came in. Um, what did you hear? Uh, just this enormous screaming Explosive. sound. The last time I'd heard a plane like that was actually at Madiba's inauguration at Union Buildings. So my first thought was, I didn't know the president was going to be in town today, George W. Bush at the time. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there was the enormous crash. Uh, then we, I you know, went into the office as paper and ash began to float down from the sky. Mm. Um, I was then uh, one of the priests at the church and I, uh, we had a little chapel across the street from the World Trade Center, St. Paul's Chapel. It was the chapel where Washington worshipped after his first inauguration as president oh, in right, 1789. Right. Yeah. And we had this historic chapel, oldest public building in New York. And that was right across the street from the World Trade Center. And the priest responsible for that chapel and I were on our way up there to see what we could do when the second plane came in. And this was a lot closer because it, it was the plane which hits the South Tower. Well, to cut a long story short, and uh, what was an hour later or so, in fact, the South Tower was hit lower than the North Tower. So that was the first to collapse, even though it was hit later. Um, and that was the one closest to our offices. Mm-hmm. And as that happened, the building, our building, with this enormous shudder as the collapse. We didn't know what had happened. And smoke enveloping the streets outside it was apocalyptic. Mm. Because when I actually first wanted to leave the building, it was totally black outside the glass doors of the building. And I thought the front of the building's fallen in. But no, the front of the building hadn't fallen in. It was completely dark in the middle of the day. And I thought, there's not an eclipse of the sun today. And of course, it was this enormous dust cloud That's right. which had overwhelmed the whole place. Yes. Now, as that was happening, New York firefighters were climbing up the stairs of the World Trade Center with disappearing into the dust, as Springsteen said, up the stairs, into the fire, carrying their hoses behind them, each with really heavy pieces of equipment, and they went up into the fire, and 343 of them died. Because then those the towers collapsed. Collapsed, yeah. it collapsed on them. The well, towers collapsed yeah. on them. Well, let's listen to this now. <laughs> Into the Fire by Bruce Springsteen. My guest on People of Note has been John Allen, who's also been telling us about this exhibition, Truth to Power, Desmond Tutu and the Churches in a Struggle Against Apartheid, here in Cape Town. John, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, it's been lovely to be with you. Thank you so much.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. FMR.